Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can call you Father, having trusted in your Son as our Savior. We are thankful for this privilege to be able to gather together for the present freedoms that we enjoy, that we can be good stewards of the resources that you've given to us, uh, especially of this resource of time, and that we can gather together and uh, take this time to study your word, that we might understand this important subject of soteriology uh, in a fuller and, and in a deeper way. Father, we just pray as we look into this word this evening, into your scripture, uh, we pray that we will be um, uh, sensitive to the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that we will be challenged by the things that we study that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name, amen. All right, so in our study on uh, soteriology, we are moving into uh, the work of the Trinity in salvation, the work of the Trinity in salvation. Uh, and we're going to st- uh, spend the next few months, we're going to do a, a pretty deep dive. We're going to jump into uh, looking at uh, the Father's role in our salvation. We're going to be looking at uh, the Son's role, uh, God the Son. And we're also going to be looking at the role of God the Holy Spirit. Now, before we uh, jump into those particulars, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity and uh, to look at a number of passages related to the members of the Godhead themselves. And we will spend this evening spending some time talking about the attributes of God. Now, in Christian theology, the Bible reveals that there is one God who exists as three distinct persons within the Trinity. Now, let me say up, up front that the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. Uh, But it is a term that has been employed by theologians uh, to speak of the three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so it is a good term, and it communicates accurately uh, the truth of Scripture. Now, when you look at a number of passages, and for example, if you look at Genesis 1.26, here you have God creating man... Um, and this is the uh, creation account of the first humans. And so we see in Genesis 1.26 where it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Now the us there uh, speaks to the other members of the Godhead. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're uh, having a conversation here. And so this is an implied plurality within the Godhead. And of course, mankind is said to be made in the image of God, the Imago Dei, uh, and it's what sets us apart uh, from the rest of the creation because we are fellow image bearers. We bear the image of God. And so uh, here we see that implied plurality where they say, God said, let us make man in our image. You see that also over in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel event, uh, where in verse 6 it says, the the Lord said, and here's what the Lord said in verse 6, behold, they are one people, and they have, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. Excuse me, now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Notice verse 7, come let us go down. And the us there is capitalized in the NASB 1995 update because it is a reference to uh, the members of the Godhead. So again, we have this implied plurality. Uh, To give you some New Testament passages, for example, uh, one uh, that uh, shows the three members of the Godhead is Matthew 28, verse 19, uh, what is commonly understood as the Great Commission. And uh, Jesus says here, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now what's interesting here is that the word name, uh, the name, uh, translates the Greek ha-anima. And anima here is, uh, is a noun and it's singular. It's singular in form in the Greek. But it is applied to three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, And in one sense, we say that that's bad grammar, but good theology. 
because it speaks of the unity within the Trinity. And of course, other passages mention the, uh, the members of the Godhead. You think of 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which says the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so we see these, uh, these passages where we have the three persons that are mentioned. Now, the question arises, you know, are there passages that show that each of these persons within the Godhead are themselves classified as deity? And the answer to that is emphatically yes. In fact, if you look at Galatians 1.1, it says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And notice the clear reference there to God the Father. Very straightforward. Ephesians 6.23 says, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Philippians 2.11 says, And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we have these uh, clear references to the Father as God. No question about that. Now, with regard to God the Son, we have some very clear passages as well. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, we have a reference here to the Word being with God, uh, and this would be God the Father, and the Word was God, this is God the Son. And John 1.14 tells us, And the Word, that is God the Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. In theology, we call that the doctrine of the hypostatic union, in which at a point in time, nearly 2,000 years ago, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, uh, took upon himself humanity. He added humanity to himself, and this occurred at a point in time. It occurred at the time of the virgin conception uh, by means of the Holy Spirit who came upon Mary and uh, she was supernaturally uh, uh, impregnated in her womb. Uh, the humanity of Christ uh, was formed. And once the union uh, was formed, once the hypostatic union occurred, which is undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity, and once the union was formed, uh, it is perpetual, it is forever. Uh, so the addition of humanity uh, to the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, uh, that will be for eternity. And when he ascended in Acts 1-9, when he ascended into heaven, he ascended bodily into heaven. And when he comes back, he will come back bodily. And when he reigns upon the earth for a thousand years in Jerusalem... Uh, during the time of the millennial kingdom, he will reign bodily. <laughs> uh, he'll be in that same body. So here we have in John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now in John 1.18, we also have an interesting passage here. It says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, uh, he has explained him. So when it says no one has seen God at any time, it's talking about God the Father. But then it says the only begotten God, monogenes theos, is the Greek. And it's the uniquely born uh, member of the Godhead. God the Son, this is a reference to the deity uh, of Christ. The only begotten God, that is the uniquely born member of the Godhead, that's Jesus Christ, who took upon himself humanity. At a point in time, remember, he added humanity to himself. And at that moment, he became the God-man, the theanthropic person. Uh, theanthropic, when, when you see the I-C on the end of a word, that ick ending, it means to make, to make. Uh, and anthropos is man, and Theos is God. So when we talk about Jesus Christ as the God-man, we call him the theanthropic person, the God-man. It's, it's, just, it's just a technical word that, apl that applies to Jesus Christ. Uh, but he is the only begotten God. And then you have passages like John 8, 58, where Jesus said to them, <clears throat> that is to the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, 
I am. Now, the phrase I am uh, from the Greek is the Greek ego ami. And ego ami uh, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Yahweh, uh, which is the doubling of the Hebrew verb Yah, which is the verb to be. And it's translated I am, and it speaks of the, etern- of the eternality of God. Um, and, of course, they rejected Jesus as God, but his claim to deity was very, very straightforward. In John chapter 20, verse 28, we have Jesus uh, appearing to Thomas. Now, remember, he appeared many times. He appeared one time to the disciples without Thomas. And Thomas, he's called Doubting Thomas. I'm not sure that's a fair charge, uh, but that's, that's the label that's put on him because... Um, he questioned it, and he said, unless I see him and touch him, uh, I'm not going to believe. And, um, of course, Jesus was very gracious, wasn't he? He appeared to him, and he said, look, touch me. You know, spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like I do. Touch me, see. And notice Thomas's response in verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, that's Jesus, my Lord and my God. He's referring to him as deity. My Lord and my God. And of course, there's many other passages. Only God can receive worship, and there are a number of times where Jesus received worship uh, from people. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus forgave sins. So there's things that Jesus said and did that were clearly uh, indicators of his deity. Uh, But again, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Now, I brought this up one time. (laughs) I brought this up one time to a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, because they do not believe in the Trinity. They believe that Jesus is a creature, that he did not exist, that he came into existence at a point in time. Mormons hold the same thing. Uh, They believe that at a point in time, uh, Jesus came into being, but they do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, And so those two groups, that's why they're outside of biblical Christianity. Uh, That's why they're classified as cults, because the Jesus that they uh, worship is not the Jesus of the Bible. But I brought this up one time, and I said, well, what do you do with this passage in John 20, 28, where Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God? And, and the response that was given to me was, I didn't expect it to come, actually. Uh, but they said Thomas was using my God as an expletive. <laughs> uh, and, and I thought, well, you know, I guess you'd have to give it some sort of a label like that, because um, the passage re- read in a straightforward way, uh, he's calling him my God. And, of course, Jesus did not correct him. And, of course, when the plain sense makes good sense, don't seek any other sense. And, of course, you have other passages. Colossians 2.9 says, uh, speaking of Jesus, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1.8, now this, this, one's, this one just really shuts the door on the whole issue. Uh, here it is speaking of the Son, uh, God the Son, speaking of Jesus. Uh, but of the Son, uh, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. <laughs> now, you can't get any clearer than that. Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Uh, and, of course, now we move on to God the Holy Spirit is, is, uh, is the Holy Spirit God. Well, you have a very, very clear statement over in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, with the account of Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, Peter said to Ananias, he said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, this was another passage that I brought up because, you know, you can lie to a person... Uh, but you can't lie to a force. And somebody one time was telling me, well, the Holy Spirit's a force. It's like the electricity in your, in your, in your house. It, it lights everything up. I said, well, that's interesting, because I can't lie to my electricity. <laughs> uh, but you can lie to a person. But he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then down in verse 4, he says quite plainly, you have not lied to men, but to who? Uh, but to God. And so lying to the Holy Spirit in verse 3 is the same as lying to God in verse 4. 
Now, there's other passages, and I've written and taught on these things before, and there's expanded uh, lessons on this, but all I'm trying to do here is just give some quick lessons to talk about uh, some quick scripture, just simply to point out that when we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, we're talking about uh, those three persons that make up the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and just simply pointing out that they are all deity. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is, in some ways, a real head-scratcher. It's, it's a very, very difficult doctrine to try to comprehend. We know that the Bible reveals it. It is a revelation of the Word of God. But to try to understand the doctrine of the Trinity really comes with some difficulties, and part of that is just because we're simply we're finite, and you cannot pour the ocean into a thimble. Uh, you cannot try to grasp the infinite God into our little finite little little brains. We just we don't have the capacity for it. So we know that the Bible clearly reveals the Trinity that all three members of the Godhead are in fact God, but but they are um, they are one. We'll talk about that here in a second. So God is three in person, but one in essence. God is three in person, but one in essence sharing the same attributes. Now, we're going to spend some time talking about the attributes because they're very important to our study of soteriology, as you'll see in a moment. Now, with regard to understanding the unity of, uh, of the Godhead, uh, there's a number of passages, and one, one of the most notable ones is Deuteronomy 6.4, what's called the Shema. And Shema is just simply the Hebrew word that means to hear. And so you look at Deuteronomy 6.4, and it was their, it was their uh, declaration of faith. Uh, because the Israelite was to say, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Translated, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Now, Echad is that word that I'm going to focus on here for a little bit. Because it's the, it's the word that's translated one, and it's the, uh, it's the Hebrew numeral one. Now, in this passage and others, uh, the, he, the use of the Hebrew numeral echad reveals, in some context, the idea of what is called a complex one. You have, you have the idea of an absolute one, uh, which is taught in Scripture, but context always determines the meaning of a word. And you have these passages where the idea of a complex one is clearly set forth. Uh, and this idea of a complex one supports the doctrine of the Trinity. For example, here's a few other passages where the use of the Hebrew numeral echad appears. In Genesis 2.24, uh, Moses wrote here, he said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And, uh, and they, that is, the man and the woman, shall become what? One flesh. Now, the word one translates our Hebrew numeral, echad. Now, at the time, and this verse is commonly used as a reference to the first marriage, which is correct. It is understood this way. It is a, it is a reference to marriage. Now, when the, when the husband and wife, when the man and the, and the woman come together, it says here that they shall become one flesh. Now, what does that mean? Because they obviously don't change with regard to their individual personhood. They don't somehow morph into an androgynous uh, new species of, uh, of, of creature, uh, having the characteristics of male and female. Uh, they retain their individual identity, and yet they are one. They are one in purpose, they are one in function, they are one in agreement, uh, they are of the same essential nature, they, they share the same substance of what it means to be human, and so when they come together, they shall become one flesh. So we see this idea here. Now we see it also over in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. And again, we're looking at a complex one, a complex unity. And in Ezra 3.1, it says, Now when the seventh month came, notice the sons of Israel, notice plural, the sons of Israel 
were in the cities, and the people, again plural, gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. They gathered together as one man, and that's Echad Ish, as one man. Uh, Now, they all retained their individual identity, but they came together as a unit, as as a complex unit, uh, and so we see this same idea here. Another example is over in Ezekiel thirty-seven seventeen, where here the Lord is instructing uh, Ezekiel. Let me back up here. Let me back up to verse 15. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions, and take another stick. And write on it for Joseph and the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel, his companions. So uh, God instructs Ezekiel to take these two sticks, and he was to write on one and write on the other. So he's got two sticks. Again, we're talking about uh, a plurality here. Uh, And then he instructs him. He says, then join them for yourself one to another in one stick. In other words, bind them together. And so here we have the word one, this idea, again, the use of the Hebrew numeral echad, that they may become echad in your hand, one in your hand. So again, we have this idea of a complex unity. So when we, when we think about the doctrine of the Trinity and, and how they are one in essence, but three in person, uh, this is the idea of what is going on here. And by the way, all three members of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are co-equal. In other words, one is not more God than the other. They are co-infinite, that is, they are not bound by time or space. They are co-eternal, they have always existed, do exist, and forever will exist. And all three are worthy of all praise and service. I have a wonderful quote here by John Wolverd. His books are very good, by the way. If you, if, you, if you get a chance to pick up some of his books, uh, he's very, very good theologian, very, writes very well, very bright man. Uh, he says, In contrast to the polytheism of the heathen world with its many gods and idols, the Christian faith centers in one God. This God, however, is revealed to be a trinity, including the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As such, we distinguish the Father from the Son and both of them from the Holy Spirit. All students of Scripture, of scriptural truth, labor to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, but it eludes them because it is beyond anything that they experience in this life. Accordingly, the best procedure is to accept the Bible as true and accept the fact that there is one God who exists in three persons and leave the explanation of this to life, to the life after this. And, uh, and that quote is from his book called What We Believe, uh, pages 38 and 39. Of course, you have this in the notes. All the footnotes will reference the uh, quotes that I have. Now, the following ancient illustration of the Trinity uh, by Paul Inns is helpful. Paul Inns uh, has a book, uh, uh, published a book, and it's, it's been... Um, I forget which edition it's in now, but it's called the Moody Handbook of Theology, and it's a a very, very, very good book. I I recommend it. If you can get it for your library, the Moody Handbook of Theology, it's it's worth your your time to get. And I borrowed this uh, illustration from him, and this is is a a modern version of it, but the illustration goes back uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. I don't know when it was first uh, crafted. But clearly, uh, the illustration, I think, tries to capture uh, the unity and the diversity within the Godhead. So here it shows that if you follow the circle around, uh, you see that the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. So there's distinction there. And yet the Father is God, The Son is God, and the Spirit is God. 
And I think it's a clever illustration to try to communicate this idea. It's probably one of the best illustrations I've seen so far. Uh, and we have to be careful when, when, when using illustrations because we don't, we don't want to misrepresent the teaching of the Scripture. And that's why I always go to the Word of God, to let the Word of God uh, speak as plainly as possible. Uh, so, moving on here. So, again, the three persons of the Godhead, remember, are one in essence. One in essence. And by the way, there is only one God. There's not a plurality. There's only one God. If you look at passages like Isaiah 43.10, God says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And before me there, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. And there will be none after me. Notice Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. So very straightforward. Notice Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 6. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So very straightforward. So the three persons of the Godhead are one in essence and share the same divine attributes. Now, the attributes of God is a very fascinating study. I did my doctoral dissertation on one of God's attributes. It was on the attribute of righteousness. And, uh, and uh, I, I got a good grade on my dissertation. I walked out with an A. Uh, so I'm, I'm proud of that. That was a, a lot of work. But I looked up every reference in the Old Testament and New Testament where the word righteous or righteousness occurs. And, of course, you're looking at the Hebrew tzaddik. Uh, you're looking at the Greek dikaiao, uh, dikaiosune. Uh, you're looking at every occurrence of it. But I had to spend a section in my dissertation talking about the other attributes of God because God is not a singular attribute. You cannot say that God is, is righteousness and that's all that God is. God is love. He is truth. Uh, he is merciful, he is faithful, he is gracious, he is kind, he is good, he is eternal, uh, he is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, he is eternal life. Uh, God has many attributes and these all work together in uh, perfect harmony with each other, such that there's not one attribute that is elevated above the other. And I found this uh, study, and I had actually done this. The first time I'd really studied the attributes of God was probably about 30 years ago. Uh, and I was reading, I think, it was, I think it was my first encounter with Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer's uh, Systematic Theology. And it was also at a time when I was being exposed to solid Bible teaching uh, from a pastor out of Houston who uh, uh, changed my life, <laughs> his teaching, uh, just really revolutionized my thinking and helped me to understand uh, doctrines in a very systematic way. And I have a, a, a great uh, appreciation uh, for Pastor Theme and the ministry that he had and continues to have through those ministers who have been influenced by his teachings over the years. Uh, but the attributes of God, that, that, that study just rocked my world. It, 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 I'll tell you, I broke new ground <laughs> in my understanding of God and life and humanity and my relationship and how things work. And I mean, it was, it was revolutionary in my thinking. And I consider uh, a study of theology proper, that is the study of God himself, which is part of what we're going to be doing over the next few months. So this is going to be a, a dive. We're, we're not going to look at everything, but we're going to be looking at quite a bit about the members of the Trinity. And so this is going to be a very, very fascinating study. Now, we're going to look at it uh, somewhat narrowly because we're going to, look at, we're going to be looking at uh, the doctrine of the Trinity and the attributes of God as it relates to soteriology. We're, 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 we're focusing in on the subject of salvation, but this has broad application in many, many areas. 
And so the attributes of God consist of intrinsic characteristics that are equally representative of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So these uh, characteristics, these attributes that we're going to be looking at here in just a little bit, uh, are equally understood to belong to all the members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, God's attributes are revealed in Scripture. The, look, look, these are all, we're going to look at some verses here, because these aren't things that you uh, grab a, a soda pop and go sit down under a tree somewhere and, and uh, uh, contemplate your navel and think about things eternal and, and somehow come up with these ideas. This is not something that is a human invention. This is a divine revelation. It is a top-down truth. It is something that God has revealed to us. And that revelation has been written down. It has been inscripturated which means that these things can be studied. These things can be looked at. And, and that's what I did. I just jumped into the Word, and I just, started, I just started mining through the Word of God. Now, you spend hours and hours and hours of study on these things, but what you pull out is just absolutely amazing. It's just amazing what is there. So, again, these attributes are revealed in Scripture, which means that they are objective and can be learned by God's people. Uh, furthermore, the attributes of God explain his actions. It explains his actions. And we cannot separate or elevate one attribute above another. Now, by the way, I'm going to take a moment here, and I'm going to date myself. <laughs> uh, when I used to wait tables... Uh, back in the early 90s, I used to wait tables at uh, Denny's Restaurant for several years uh, while I was working on my undergraduate degree. And uh, this was back when, uh, when computers had not yet been introduced. They were not, uh, they were not uh, being used uh, at the restaurant that I was at. In fact, I'm not even sure that they were even available at the time. But we had up in our window, we had what was called a pass-through. And this, uh, you had that the front area, which is where the servers were. This was the battleground. This is, this is where we were out taking orders, trying to please clients and customers. And <clears throat> I used to work the, uh, the midnight shift uh, at Denny's years ago when I was there. I used to work the shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. And, of course, all the bars closed at 2 o'clock in the morning, and you'd get the bar run. And you'd get all sorts of crazy people in there, drunks, fighting, shouting, some happy, some sad. I had a guy one time order a big plate of uh, biscuits and gravy with extra gravy, and I, I took it out to him. I turned around, and I got three steps away. I heard thud. I looked back around, and his face was planted in the biscuits and gravy. And there was so much gravy on that plate, there were little bubbles forming around his mouth. Now, I had to pull this guy's head out of the gravy because he would have drowned. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. And so I had, to, I had saved his life. Uh, we, had, we had to call the police, and of course, you know, they got some family member to come pick him up and take him home. Uh, but it was a very lively time. Lots of opportunity to grow as a Christian, lots of opportunity to shine. Uh, but my point is, is that when we used to take orders, yeah, yeah, I wasn't digressing. You thought I was, I was losing. Okay. Um, but when we used to take orders, we had a ticket window, and it was a wheel, and it hung in this pass-through. And uh, the wheel had numbers on it, number one, number two, number three, number four. And so what you would do is you would come over and you would write your ticket as legibly as you could because the cook had to read it. So you write your ticket and you, you, you go up to the wheel and you turn around to number one, you pop it in there and you spin it around. Well, then the cook sees it and he can read it. Well, uh, you might, on a really busy day, you might have uh, tickets all the way around that wheel. You might have 20, 25 tickets on a wheel. And my point is, is that when, when you're in the kitchen and you're looking at that wheel, at any moment you have just one or two or three tickets in front of you. But wrapped around the side of that wheel, all the way around the backside are all these tickets. Now, I used to visualize that when I used to think about the attributes of God, because when I'm reading through the Bible... I may pick up a, a section in the Psalms and I may read about the grace of God or I may read about the righteousness of God or the goodness of God or the mercy of God. But having studied his attributes, uh, every time I was looking at a verse, it was like uh, looking at one, one or two tickets on that ticket wheel. And even though that was what was in front of me, I always had to keep in mind that all the other attributes were present, though they were out of sight, 
they were nonetheless always present. And I had to think in terms of the package. I had to think about all the attributes. And, and as I turned that wheel, that's like flipping the pages of the Bible. And you, you turn the wheel and around comes love and around comes uh, kindness and around comes eternal life and around comes sovereignty and around comes omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence. And, and you begin to see these other attributes. But as one come into focus, others come out of view. And so when you're reading, when you're flipping through the Bible, you want to keep in mind that all of these attributes belong to God, to all the members of the Godhead. And so it becomes a, a helpful way to us to, to, to think about this uh, in a way that tries to keep everything uh, in our thinking. So let's look at some of the major attributes. And by the way, if you study systematic theology, and when I was writing my dissertation, I had to, I had to read many, many, many books uh, that address the subject of the attributes of God. And one of the things that you'll find is that systematic theologians, uh, theologians who write these systematic theology sets are not all in agreement as to the number of attributes. And so it's kind of up in the air. Uh, but there are some that are very, very clearly stated, and these are the ones that I've listed here, uh, the major attributes. So the Bible reveals, first of all, that God is living. The Bible reveals that God is living. Uh, and this means, Jeremiah 10.10 10 tells us that he is the living God and the everlasting king. Now notice here you've got two attributes immediately on the page here. You have God as the living God, and he's everlasting, and he's the king, which would imply his sovereignty. So he is the living God. And John 5.26 also tells us that he has life in himself. Now, when I look at life around me, uh, uh, my wife and I, we had to put our little dog down uh, December last year, our little Havanese. We had her for 13 years. She was our, our little blessing in the home. And, uh, but there was life there. I could look into those eyes. And there was a, a modicum of intelligence in, in the dog world. She wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed among, among dogdom. Uh, but uh, but there, was, there was intelligence there. You could, you could communicate. I could say things. And she knew that it was time to go outside. She knew it was time for dinner. She knew it was time for bed. Uh, and so you could, you, could, you, know, you, could, you could interact with her. But there was life there. But her life came to an end. And her life had a beginning. Her life is derivative. Let me, let me put it that way. Her life is derivative. It derived from another source. And that source was derivative. It, de it would derive from another source. And so there, there's this cause and effect that we look at when we look at life. Well, God's life is not derivative. His life is intrinsic to who he is. Uh, he, is, he has everlasting life. He, it, it is connected to his eternality, but God is living. He is the living God, and he has life in himself. And you look at Psalm 42, too. He is called the living God. Psalm 84, too. He's called the living God. Uh, Matthew 16, 16, he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. John 1, 4 uh, says, In him was life. And the life was the light of men, because it's intrinsic as to who he is. And he is the ultimate source of life. We think back in Genesis 1, where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so all that came into being, the whole universe itself, and the earth itself, and all life upon the earth, uh, finds its origin in God, who is the creator. And so he is the ultimate source of life. And if you look at like Acts 17, 28, it says, For in him, that is in God, we, we live and move and exist. Our very existence uh, is what it is because it is tied to the one who gave us life. And I think back to Genesis chapter 2 where God formed Adam from the dust of the earth. And he's standing there and he's staring at biological life. And then it tells us in Genesis 2 that it says that the Lord came to him and he breathed into him the breath of life, the nashamachayim. And, and Adam took that breath in. And at that moment, he became a living soul. And God must have imputed immediate intelligence into Adam because Adam, uh, two seconds later, was having a conversation with God. A conversation language is, just a, it's, it, is in itself just an intriguing thing. 
which God himself is the origin of language as well, because he gave language to the first people. And he confused the languages at the, taver, at the Tower of Babel. I mean, God created language, God controls language, but language itself and communication, this whole idea of communication, is predicated on this assumption that language serves as a reliable vehicle for the expression of ideas. And I'm doing this thing right now called communication, where I'm able to formulate a thought in my mind, and I'm able to verbalize that with my mouth, transmit it across the airways. These digital uh, microphones in front of me are picking it up, and it's being transmitted di digitally. It's being recorded electronically, will be uploaded to my podcast site later. But people will be able to listen to this, and they will be able to uh, make sense of the sounds that I'm making, and because uh, of, of the particular sounds that I'm making, uh, they, because we have a shared bank of vocabulary, I will be able to communicate ideas, and they will be able to receive those ideas. And, and they can even form new ideas in their mind. We are able to impart knowledge by means of education. That's what education is. And, the, of course, the highest function of language is divine revelation. It is God himself talking to us. That's the highest form of revelation. That's the highest purpose of revelation, was uh, for God to be able to reveal something about himself to mankind. Now, people suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and that's, that's the wickedness of man. And, of course, at the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. But, nonetheless, that's the purpose of language. But when we look at these things... Uh, we realize that everything goes back to God, that, that, that the first uh, man and the first woman were created as, as acts of God who brought life into being, and all life that is subsequent to that is derivative life. It's derivative, and so, uh, but it all goes back to God, who is the first cause. And so, again, Paul's point, it's, it's very profound. I mean, when you really, when you begin to unpack these things, it is just the, uh, the, the depth of profoundness here is just amazing. For in him, we live and move and exist. And, of course, God's attribute of, of, uh, of being living uh, really takes priority uh, in this sense, uh, because if God is not living, then none of the other attributes are even possible. Now, another attribute is God is said to be self-existent. Uh, the term that is used by theologians is the word aseity, uh, meaning having life in itself, aseity. And uh, self-existent means, uh, means that his existence depends on nothing outside of himself. Uh, we think of uh, Exodus 3.14, where Moses, when asking God when he was going to go to the people, he said, who shall I say sent me? And God says, Yahweh, I am. And that communicates the idea of his eternal existence, that he, that he does exist, has always existed, forever will exist, and that there's never a time when he did not exist. Uh, Moses wrote, there, by the way, the Psalms, uh, the 150 Psalms, roughly half of them, about 75, were written by David. I think 75 is uh, right, or maybe 74. But Moses wrote Psalm 90. It's, it's the only one I'm aware of that was written by Moses. But in Psalm 90, verse 2, Moses said, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Notice, from everlasting to everlasting. So from eternity in one direction to eternity in another direction, uh, you are God. Uh, so there is no prior cause that brought God into existence. He will never cease to be, and he depends on nothing outside of himself. The next attribute is God's holiness. God is said to be holy. Uh, Leviticus 11.44 says, uh, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And holy here, kadosh, in the Hebrew, means that God is morally perfect and separate from all that is sinful. Psalm 99, verse 9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. Holy is the Lord our God. And of course, again, this speaks uh, to his being morally perfect and again separate from all that is sinful. And so we are called to be holy. We are called to be more and more separate, separated from the contaminants of, of a sinful world and sinful values and sinful behaviors. And for us, it's a work in progress. That's why it's called progressive 
sanctification because we are progressing on this journey of of uh, drawing more and more to God. Uh, the Bible also reveals that God is spirit, that he is spirit. John 4, 24, Jesus says God is spirit. And of course, uh, functionally here, he says, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But God is spirit. That, that is his very nature. And it means that the nature of God's being is spirit, not material. God is said to be sovereign. Psalm 115, verse 3, but God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And this means that God acts freely as he pleases, always as he pleases, and only as he pleases. And of course, when, when, when God acts, when he acts, uh, uh, his sovereignty uh, acts in conjunction with love, such that when he acts, he will always act in a way that does not violate uh, the attribute of love, uh, nor goodness, nor mercy, but he may act according to righteousness and justice. Uh, the Bible also reveals that God is immutable, immutable. He does not change. Psalm 102, verses 26 and 27, Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Malachi 3, 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Now listen, people, everything in life is in a state of change. Now sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. I'm changing. I'm trying to become more and more uh, uh, improved. I'm trying to work on the improved Steve, uh, not the one that existed 30 years ago, which was a troublemaker, a little more than 30 years ago. Uh, but the weather changes, the economy changes, politicians change office. I mean, just everything's fashion changes, uh, everything changes. God doesn't change. His word doesn't change either. Uh, Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So God is immutable, which means that his essential nature does not change. Now that, that gives us a, a stable reference point because it tells us that God, with all of his attributes, are constant. It, it, it does, it's not like God fluctuates. It's not like he becomes less God one day and more God the next. He's immutable. He does not change. God is eternal which means that God has always existed, does exist, and forever will exist. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. But he is described in Scripture as being eternal. God is also infinite, which means God exists uh, in space, but he also exists beyond space. 1 Kings 8.27 says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. So it's not like you can confine God to the universe he created. <laughs> the universe he created is nothing. It's, it's like the head of a pen. It's nothing to him. He's infinite in, in his being. Jeremiah 23:24 says, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? That speaks of his omniscience because he knows all things. But then the latter part of verse 24, he says, Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? So God is infinite. He is in space and he is beyond space. God is omniscient. That means he knows all things. He knows all things. Excuse me. God, yeah, God is omniscient. Uh, omni, meaning all, and say uh, here, referring to knowledge. And David captures this in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. When You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down, and you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. And, and that just blows my mind because, you know, God knows all of our thoughts from beginning to end. He knows every detail of my life. The average person, I think, blinks like 20,000 times in their lifetime. The average heart pumps 50,000 barrels of blood in, in the average lifetime. He knows exactly to the beat 
how many times Steve's heart will beat and how many times I will blink in my life. He knows how many breaths I will take. He knows how many hairs are on my head. And trust me, uh, I, I lose hair daily. I look in the sink. I see hair. And so that's a changing number there. But at every given moment, he knows exactly the hairs on my head. And not just me, but 8 billion other people on the planet and everybody in the past and everybody in the future. And he's aware of every bird in the sky and fish in the sea and grain of sand upon the seashore and every flower in the field. And he's aware of all the molecules in the atmosphere and not just on our planet, but in our galaxy. And there's about 100 billion stars in our galaxy. And there's about 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. Uh, and to think about that is just staggering to the imagination. And God knows them all. He knows everything. He is, um, he is omniscient. Um, and this, again, means that God knows all things and is infinite in knowledge. God is omnipresent. Uh, Psalm 139, 7 through 10, David says, Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? The answer is nowhere. He says in verse 80, he waxes uh, poetic and eloquent here. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay a hold, me, a hold of me. You can't get away from God. He is omnipresent. He is equally and fully everywhere all the time. He's not more in one place and less the next. And God knows everything about you. He knows all of the details of your life. There's nothing that surprises God. Nothing. And, and ev everywhere we go, uh, God is there. God is omnipresent. And he is omnipotent. Job 42, 2. I, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And to be omnipotent means that God is all-powerful and able to accomplish all that he desires. God is also righteous, Psalm uh, 11, verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. And notice the passages, a lot of the passages I'm looking at uh, uses the word is because this speaks of something that is true to God. It is true to his essential nature. God, the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness, you see. So love here is brought in and you'll see this. You'll see a verse where you might see two or three attributes on, uh, on display, and righteousness refers to his intrinsic moral perfection from which he commands all things in heaven and earth and declares as good that which conforms to his righteousness and as evil that which deviates. God is also said to be just. Psalm 19, 7 and 8 says, But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment uh, for the peoples with equity. And to say that God is just, it refers to the outworking of his righteousness in which he justifies or condemns, blesses or curses, that which does or does not conform to his righteous character. We might understand that righteousness and justice are tandem attributes. They work very, very closely together like a hand in a glove. Because what the righteousness of God requires, the justice of God executes. Such that if the righteousness of God approves of something, the justice of God will bless it. And if the righteousness of God rejects something, then the justice of God will condemn it. And so those are very, very close attributes. You see them together quite a bit in Scripture. The Bible also reveals that God is true. John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Um, and this means that he is genuine that he is genuine in contrast to false idols. This also means that he is truthful. 2 Samuel 7, 28, uh, he says, Now, O Lord, you are God, and your words are truth. Your words are truth. In fact, the flip side of that, we think of passages like Hebrews 6, 18, which says it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie because God is truth, and his words are truth truth and it is impossible for God to lie now Satan's a liar he's the father of lies uh, but God is true and God is truth all that he says is truth John 17 17 Jesus prays to the father and he says sanctify them in the truth your word is truth so his knowledge and declarations literally define reality and help us to make sense of what is they literally define reality God is said to be love. Uh, 1 John 4, uh, 7 and 8. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And to say that God is love means that he is committed to us, that he desires our best, and he always acts for our benefit, whether that's to comfort us or to spank us when we need it. But he always acts for our benefit. The Bible teaches that God is good. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, The Lord is good. Psalm 145 verse 9, The Lord is good. Nahum 1 7, The Lord is good. You see the pattern there? <clears throat> and by the way, once you start looking at these, you, you, they just start popping all over the place. Uh, once, once, once you get the general paradigm in your thinking and you understand, you begin to see the pattern, all of a sudden now it just starts popping all over the place. And... Um, and, and this is to say that all that he does is good and that he is the ultimate source of all that is good. In fact, James 1.17, he says, Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The Bible also teaches that God is faithful. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God. God keeps his promises. God cannot lie. God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his word. He is faithful. Lamentations 3.21, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. This is the discipline of Jeremiah in a crisis. This I recall to mind. You see, he's thinking. He's thinking. He's thinking doctrine. He's thinking divine viewpoint. Therefore, I have hope. He's not in the dungeon of despair. Uh, he's thinking divine viewpoint. And what is he thinking? He says, The Lord loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so he recognizes this, and this gives him stability in his soul. And so to be faithful means that God is reliable in all he says and does, always keeping his word. God is said to be merciful, Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. Uh, and of course, that takes us to our next point. Now, merciful means that he is kind toward us and does not judge us as we deserve. Gracious means that he treats us better than we, are des than we deserve. Psalm 111, verse 4, the Lord is gracious. Psalm 116, verse 5, the Lord is gracious. Now, all three persons of the Godhead are involved in providing our salvation. Now, as I mention these attributes, and trust me, we flew through these. If you could spend weeks unpacking these, and if you pick up a good systematic theology, you'll do exactly that. Uh, but it's a very, very rewarding study. And what you'll find is that when we, when, as we dive a little further into this doctrine of soteriology, what you're going to find is all three members of the Godhead displaying love toward humanity, righteousness in the fact that God judges our sin at the cross. You're going to see God's goodness. You will see his justice. You will see his truthfulness. You will see his faithfulness. You will see the attributes of God on full display. You will see his mercy. You will see his grace. All of these come together and coalesce at a point in time, and that is at the cross. And we will see these points, and I, and I give this to you just in germ form, just to kind of plant the seed, so that as we move forward, this will be in your mind, and you will see how this relates to the doctrine of soteriology, because we're going to see this unpacked a little here and a little there. Now, I'm going to go over for about five minutes here, so hold on with me. So I'm just going to read through these next few points here. Now, all three persons of the Godhead are involved in providing our salvation. Our salvation is said to be planned and initiated by God the Father, agreed upon and executed by God the Son, and imparted to each person by God the Holy Spirit. Here I have a quote from Lewis Berry Chafer, and this is going to be from his Systematic Theology, Volume 3, page 207. He says, It is essential to recognize that the salvation which is of Jehovah includes the three persons of the Godhead as actively engaged in the realization of this stupendous undertaking. 
In every aspect of saving grace, the three persons are concurring. Even when hanging on the cross, the Son of God, the Son was not alone in his vast achievement. It was God who was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And the Father was offering his Lamb, and that sacrifice was offered through the eternal Spirit. Dr. Robert Leitner, Dr. Robert Leitner, and here I'm quoting from his handbook on evangelical theology, uh, pages 190 and 191. He says, Evangelical Christians uh, in harmony with the historic Orthodox Christian faith worship God who is one in three and three in one, one in essence, three in person. The entire Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is involved in the salvation of the sinner. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for sinners. He is the Savior. It is customary in evangelical circles to put such Uh, uh, such emphasis on the second person's part in our salvation that the roles of the Father and the Spirit are often slighted. He goes on, he says, even though it is not always expressed in the same way, evangelicals agree that man's salvation is the product of the Holy Trinity. And Warren Wiersbe, he says, you will note that all three persons in the Godhead are involved in our salvation. As far as God the Father is concerned, you were saved when he chose you in in Christ in eternity past. But that alone did not save you. As far as God the Son is concerned, you were saved when he died for you on the cross. As far as God the Holy Spirit is concerned, you were saved when you yielded to his conviction and received Christ as your Savior. What began in eternity past was fulfilled in time present and will continue for all eternity. Now, next week, we're going to pick up and we're going to give special attention uh, to the first of the members of the Trinity. And we're going to talk about God the Father's role in our salvation. And so this begins our journey now of, uh, of looking at each of the members of the Godhead and the role that they will play concerning our salvation.